Awesome. Okay. We are here, or I am here. Um, you're here in the virtual world, I guess. And we have today a guest who I'm super excited, super, super excited to have on. This is Toby. I'm actually not sure what your last name is. My last name's Jesky Rogers. Jesky Rogers. Is that hyphenated? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, cool. <clears throat> so, Toby is, if you had listened to the last, I think it was the last podcast I did, it was um, called What is Chat? GPT, which is kind of in the world of computing and things like that. And, um, well, I guess I can leave it up to you. So if you can just sort of give a brief kind of bio, I guess, of yourself, kind of what your job is, and then we'll sort of go from there. I work as a software developer. Um, so primarily I do uh, web, web technology. So I write code in. JavaScript, TypeScript, PHP, um, do a little bit of Go stuff on the side, which is a language that's fairly new, created by Google. Um, when you say language, you're talking like pro computer language? Yeah, like, yep. yeah programming okay. language, yeah. Yep. Uh, I do app development as well, um, using uh, JavaScript with native script and, and Flutter as well, which is a fairly new framework that's come out for cross-platform development on iOS and Android. Um, and I've got a fairly big interest in cryptography, which is basically the process of encrypting data to make it readable only by the people that you want it readable by. Okay, no worries. Um, that's I'm, I'm glad you gave that. There were a lot of, uh, I mean, you might not even see it as complex terminology, but... So I think, I think something that we'll do moving forward, and obviously that's a bias, so we've, we've jumped in there. For anybody who's familiar with that kind of stuff, obviously that's going to be great. And then as we go, we'll kind of um, unpack things as though a complete novice had kind of heard it, which I think will probably take <laughs> a long time to, to get there. Sorry, what were you going to say? No, that's, that's great. I love kind of like delving into to that kind of stuff and explaining how it works mm. it's, it's yeah so i was curious because i've never asked you this oh sorry did i cut you off again no, no. i was curious because i've never asked you this how at what stage because in the couple of conversations that we've had it's clear that you're quite passionate about about what you do i'm wondering when you know through your childhood or at what stage did that world become interesting to you and what was that experience sort of like yeah, so um, I kind of got interested in software, computers, programming when I was in high school. Um, I wasn't super interested in computers prior to that, um, but I had a, a friend, I have a friend who uh, was really interested in hacking and mm. malicious use of, of computers uh, because you can really get computers and things and computers people iot things you can get it to do your will even if it's programmed almost deliberately not to let you do that okay um so finding exploits and and understanding how a system works like mm. completely enough that you can leverage it to force it to do what you want it to do mm. was just a super interesting idea to me um so we, we kind of got into hacking, me, me and this friend of mine, we were running viruses. Like the first virus I ever wrote was, we called it cup holder, and it would randomly eject the CD tray in a, 
old school desktop computer. Oh, um, right. So it's like a cup holder, you know, that was the, that was uh, the yeah, joke. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and <laughs> nice. I, I think we got it on to about 70% of the computers at school. So as the, uh, the teachers were giving lectures and stuff, you'd just hear all the computers in the background. <laughs> just, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and, and that kind of uh, grew t- into like experimenting with this operating system called Linux. Uh, which is free and open source, which is really cool because you can read all the code so you can understand how it works like from the very like lowest levels of the operating system of the mm. kernel. Uh, but you can also write code yourself that interfaces with the code that other people have written. So you can, instead of trying to exploit the code to make it do what you want it to do, you can just do it by the design of the operating system. It, it lets you do whatever you want it to so do. So the operating system, you could say, is malleable enough so that it's it allows you the keys to to play with it? Or do you have to export it for yourself? Because is this something that's online? So you go online and it's a... Well, yeah. well an operating system is... Um, what your computer first looks at, the code it first looks at when you boot it up. Okay. So. Oh cons- right. So this is per with the cup holder thing. This was per computer. So you, you're yeah. not using one computer and then linking it somehow we, to another one across the room. We we did have uh, we we were doing something uh, what's called a worm. So um, when you have a uh, a virus that's a worm, it will automatically infect computers that it can find that mm. are uh, vulnerable to the attack. Yeah. Um, so this this cup holder, it did link to other computers, but yeah, it, it primarily just sat on the computer and, and just opened the CD tray randomly every 10 minutes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so you set a timer to it? Yeah, yeah, it would just oh. randomly, randomly, like about every 10 minutes, it would just open up the, yeah, right. the CD tray. Um, so yeah, after after I started writing viruses and stuff for for Windows computers, I got into uh, playing around with with making a computer do what I want it to do for myself rather than for to mm. exploit or exploit for- and and cause havoc. <laughs> um, yeah. And I realized like to be a good hacker, to be a good security professional, I need to learn like how to code. I really need to learn all like how a computer works from like the lowest level to to the highest level of abstraction. I needed that, all that knowledge. So. And why was that exciting for you? So um, if I could just put a few, and you're not supposed to do this if you're a psychologist, but I'm not one, so it's fine. Um, <laughs> you're not supposed to put words in other people's mouths. So there's the, is it that not many other people are doing this? And so there's an attraction there. Is it that you and your friend had this bond and came across this or what made it attractive? It's, it's a lot of like, you get a rush from, from exploiting a system Mm. because, because like the developers of that system, whether it be like the windows operating system or a random website online or some other piece of software, They've written this software with the express intent to stop you from doing what you're doing. Mm. So you're saying it's it's almost a way of saying no. Actually, I'm I'm smarter than you. Okay. You yep. know, I I really understand the system, and I can force it to do whatever I want. 
Yeah. You know, um, and and it's it's you get a bit of a rush. So with with hackers, there's several different um, kind of uh, groups that people are categorized that hackers are categorized into. Okay. And that's white hat, gray hat, and black hat. Do you mind if I write this down whilst we're no, uh, absolutely. Whilst we're going. You said so, white hat. White hat, grey hat, and black hat. So a white hat is a legal security professional that gets contracted or employed to break into a system in order to fix the existing exploits on that system. Okay. So um, I we've recently, at the place that I currently work, we've recently built a system that's incredibly security conscious because it, you know, directly has implication on, on people's health and safety. So we hire external third parties to verify that the code we have written does not have any exploits in it. Ah, right. So that's almost like a challenge yeah, to, to other white hats. Yes. If, if, if that's how, re that's how they're referred to. Yeah. Um, so is that similar to what happened with Optus and was it Medicare? Uh, yes. Yeah. 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 With the health information being so, a white hat. So the the problem did not the, do their job right. <laughs> exactly. The, yeah. Or they didn't hire a white hat. Um, oh, okay. So yeah. so some people get pretty lax with their security, and um, and that's that's the benefit of these legal hackers. And I presume there's like financial reasons why people, or maybe even egotistical reasons why organisations wouldn't want to pursue. Getting a system that's like, why wouldn't you want to hire a, a white hat? Yeah, I couldn't. I think the the it's it's primarily financial, but I think that it's not a problem. People won't see it as a problem until it's actively a problem. You know, yeah, okay. Like, yep, yep. You know, future. You know, yep. Sorry. It's it's just in the future. It just doesn't. You know, it doesn't even come into people's heads that they yeah. can be hacked like that. Yeah, I think in psychology, there's sort of a thing called future discounting. It's, it's not the exact same as what you're saying, but it uh, reminded me of that where people, um, they delay things that they should or must do now. Uh, oh, sorry, that they should do now and, and, and forget about the consequences that, that that will have in the future and they just focus on the things that they kind of want to do that's, now. So that's the relationship that what you just said brought up in, in mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that absolutely rings true you know mm. i think that's that's absolutely the case um and then we have black hat hackers and these are the the bad guys these are the the ones that do stuff to to break systems to steal credit card informations and passwords and steal people's identities and that kind of stuff um you know they're also ah. called bad uh, bad actors is is what they're referred to in the security yep. security uh community Yep. Um, and then you have grey hats and grey hats are somewhere in between so they don't ask permission prior to hacking a system but if they hack a system and they they find exploits etc etc they will then notify the company afterwards really? and, and yeah so either either for compensation or just, just to let them know so they can fix it so someone worse than them doesn't come and and Wow, that's a bit so, of a moral kind of, uh, yeah, sort of dilemma because I presume that the grey hats, I'm not sure if I'm using the right terminology just by referring to them as grey hats, I'm just going to go with that. 
Um, but the Grey Hats put themselves at legal risk for notifying the company. But then, yeah, it's like almost like if somebody drops their wallet and you pick it up and it's like, do you give it back to them? And if there's money in it, does the person give you a certain percentage of the money that you had that was in your wallet because they otherwise could have taken it all? Exactly. Or what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Wow, interesting. So very morally gray area um, and, and illegal. Um, but I was, uh, went, went back in my hacking days, I was <laughs> a gray hat. Yeah. Um, so I would exploit systems and, and get into places where I really shouldn't be. Yeah. Uh, but I would do it for the fun of the challenge mm. to, to see what I could make that computer on the other side of the world do remotely, mm. you know? Um, and a lot of fun. I, I hacked... Uh, my most notable, my most, my, my, my proudest moment when I was a hacker, <laughs> uh, was, uh, I hacked a gun store in, in America. Mm. Um, and I got their credit card information and passwords and could see all their, their sales of their, their guns going through their store and everything like that. And, um, I just emailed them their passwords. I emailed them and said, I said, look what I found. I've got into your server. I own this box you know i can do whatever i want with it by box i mean server um Mm -hmm. and um and yeah they they fixed it up which was which was great what was their i'm curious what was their response to you and i presume you're not using uh your email like no uh, it was you know it's a it's pseudonym or something like that yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Um, so did they get back to you or they just changed it? They did get back. They did get back to me. Um, they Communication was cut off. I was 15 at the time. Uh, and communication was cut off when I asked for compensation for my work. Uh, but that's okay. Like, mm. I can understand why they wouldn't, <laughs> yeah. wouldn't pay some 15-year-old on the other side of the world like for hacking their, their website. But, <laughs> yeah, um, thanks very much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, so um, they, they were pretty surprised, um, kind of wanted to know how I did it and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And was that something that you shared with them or you, it was not too much more than, um, well, you guys are very vulnerable, you need to look into this? I, I shared a little bit, um, you know, I used the, the terminology so that they could hire someone, you know, that they wanted to, you know, that they wanted to hire and mm. they could say we have found this website is uh, vulnerable to SQL injection and remote code execution. And that's kind of where I, where left I it. left it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So the, that I can imagine, especially how old did you say you were 15? I can imagine that to be quite thrilling. Like to, I was even just thinking today about, you know, what, what it's like that rebellious nature of, you know, young, young people, I guess, or, you know, teens or whatever. And to be equipped with that kind of power with not really a whole lot of responsibility. I mean, it's, it's, uh, there's some well-intentioned kind of behavior behind it by actually, you know, being a gray hat and putting yourself on, on the line to sort of do that. I guess you couldn't have been a white hat at the time because you weren't, I, I with an organization or, or exactly. And, and, um, looking back now, like I realized that I was really scraping the bottom of the barrel of things that I were hacking. Um, it, and really, even with a gun store, I would have thought that to be quite, 
you would be surprised. You would be surprised about how terrible security is. So security, physical security does not necessarily... Well, that makes sense now I'm saying it doesn't translate to you know, cyber digital, security. Not yeah, at digital, all. Digital, yeah. Not at all. And, um, but looking back even now, like I realize that now I don't have the, the experience and the knowledge to be an effective white hat. So, oh, interesting. So it's, it's definitely a deep field. Um, lots, of, um, lots of things you need to know to, to do that. So... Yeah. 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 I wanted to ask you about the culture of, again, this is a, I know I'm using really broad terms, but just the computing world. Like you hear things like, oh, Silicon Valley. Again, I'm just throwing out bits and pieces of things that I've heard. And as with, I mean, as with any field, it breaks down into its disciplines and things like that. So is there a general kind of, culture that it feels like to be a part of in especially in the hacking world i imagine it to be you said it sounds kind of competitive in a way um it's a challenge of the intellect it's 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 very competitive there's websites that you can sign up uh on online that um where you literally just you battle other hackers that's the that's the goal this is like mr robot the tv show yeah Yeah. you um you know there'll be a list of 10 10 servers at a time and you have to go in and you have to hack and they've got increasing levels of difficulty and when you you know you get points for it so you've got kind of like a leaderboard of of who's the best hacker wow Yeah. yeah i'm not surprised that that exists but then at the same time it's sort of like Again, it's kind of like with the grey hat thing where it's like it makes these people vulnerable because now... But in this yeah. case, it's legal because because they have permission to hack that those systems. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. So how... Are there any other ways that you would uh, identify with or categorize the culture that you're a part of? Um, well, yeah, I've, I've moved away from hacking quite a lot nowadays. Um, so now... I, I, I primarily focus on building rather than, than destroying systems. Mm. Um, there's, people are definitely um, very opinionated in the, in the software developer community about what software to use, like what editor to use, for example, uh, what programming languages are good and what are bad. I think the general consensus is that they're all bad. Um, you know, is that just, just because um, nothing's perfect? And so by default, yeah, by if, taking it to an extreme... They're all bad because they're all flawed, which I wouldn't necessarily say are the same thing. Uh, yeah, it, you kind of it's it's always a trade off. No matter mm. what you use, what language you use, you're you're always giving up something for the for another benefit. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Mm. Yeah. And then, so how long have you been in it now, away from the hacking side of things? Um, yeah, so I've been I've been working as a software developer for about four or five years now. Yeah. Uh, but I've been writing code for about 10 years. Okay. Yeah. And can we, can we spoke about this the first time that we caught up, which was the distinction between software and hardware. Yeah. Um, just cause just for anyone who goes software development, eh, I've heard the term, but I've got no idea what you're talking about. Software, uh, software is, is information. That's all it is. It's it's ones and zeros on a hard drive or in memory or on an SSD. Um, it's something that you can program into a computer and make it do things. 
hardware is anything you can touch. Yep. So a computer consists of both hardware and software. The hardware facilitates the software to run. Yeah. Yeah, and I like that. Um, I've heard that kind of description before, and I like that because it maps onto... So I've just done this uh, little series on addiction where I was talking about um, what's happening in the brain, so um, kind of structurally or functionally. Um, so the thing, again, that you could touch and then what's happening psychologically, which is more like what people kind of say is the mind. Some people say that the mind is what the brain is doing. Um, but I like that distinction and I think it relates, at least to the, de- to the degree that I understand it, it relates to this hardware-software thing where the brain itself is the hardware and then the mind, the kind of, you know... Consciousness. Uh, yeah, consciousness and, and any of the functions that your mind does. So if you're, you know, remembering somebody's name, that you, you can see neurons in the brain that are firing, but you're having an experience of remembering somebody's name. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Nothing, yeah. nothing... Uh, and tell me where this doesn't align or if this doesn't align with the computing analogy, but... Nothing uh, inherent about the firing of those neurons necessarily means that that is the name that you're going to remember, if that makes sense. See, I would have thought, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would have thought that, or, or my current understanding of how the mind works, how the brain works, is that it's the specific pattern of the neurons firing. Sorry, yes, as you're saying, I'm, I'm correcting myself in my head, which... Ah, great. There's the, uh, the flaws that I was telling you. <laughs> this, is why, this is why I'm doing the podcast, to iron, iron through these moments. But so, yes, you're right. The, those, it, the exact neurons fired again. I think what I'm trying to say is that nothing inherent about the firing of neurons necessarily means that you're going to have an experience, yet you still feel like you're having an experience. So there's some, I'm trying to create a distinction between... I guess, well, hardware and software and that there's the actual things that's going on um, physically mm. and then there's things that are of a more what we call mental nature. Whether or not they are actually different in any way. I, I think that um, like consciousness is a bit of a black box, right? For sure, like, yeah. Like um, we don't really understand why we're having an experience or, or where, that, where consciousness comes from. Um, with, with um, like, there's still physical things happening in the brain when you're having a thought, you know, there's, there's mm. those electric charges. Same thing as, as um, like, software on a computer. It's, there, there are electrons moving through what are called logic gates, which will make the electrons uh, move one way or the other, turn, turn okay. flip a switch, depending on how much input or a lack of input they're getting. Um, and that's so, kind of a physical switch, or it could even be a yeah. It's sorry, it, yep. It's a physical switch. Yep, it's, okay. it's, they're, they're called transistors. So, so I guess transistors, you know, kind of similar to neurons in that in that aspect. Mm, hang on a sec. I'm just gonna no open up the door for this bird. That's so weird. We've had this bird for. Uh, probably a couple of months now and it's really got its own, I've never really been much of an animal person, but to have, 
to recognize some of its behaviors and go, oh, right, it's actually trying to communicate with me is mm. a, I find it a really, really weird experience. Uh, I've, people have it with dogs as well. I, like I said, I've never really been much of an um, animal kind of person. Yeah, but, I'm yeah. not really a, a big animal person either, but um, it is interesting seeing animals' behavior. Like, it is, it's curious. Yeah, I actually, I used to work uh, with a kid, so doing um, mentoring, like disability support work, and this uh, boy has autism and intellectual disability. And it was, it was interesting because communicating with people, it's it so challenging to be able to recognize all the signs. It's like, okay, they're smiling, but are they smiling because I've just done something embarrassing and I look like an idiot? Or are they smiling at me because they're interested in what I have to say or something like that? So there's so many things that he was trying to compute. And this is very, it's, uh, that's a lot of kind of, uh, it's very cerebral relative to just picking up on kind of, I guess you could call it the vibe of how someone appears, if that makes sense. And this was really, well, firstly, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. This was really apparent uh, when he would be interacting with animals. With We went to the dog park and he was able to go, oh, that dog is... I don't think he said anxious. I think he said scared or, or maybe he did say anxious. I'm not sure. But he was able to pick up on the behaviors of things that were going on because it was, there was no need to use language as, you know, one example. And I think maybe there was less of a fear of judgment or something like that. So I just found that to be a really, a re it was really interesting to watch and observe that. Yeah. I, that's something that, that really interests me as well is, mm. um, uh, how the human mind would think if if they never learned a language, if that person mm. never learned a language. And um, I was reading a small article about um, a book that Helen Keller wrote, and she said that oh, it's yeah. very instinctual because she she lost her sight and hearing uh, when she was like a toddler. So yeah. she only learned a few words before like losing. The ability to use language mm. and she said it was very 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 instinctual yeah well i mean that's interesting though because we could create the distinction between uh language itself and and maybe we could say instead communication because there are there's things called like critical periods i'm not sure if you've heard of them um i was actually talking about it in one of the other podcasts that i did where i can't remember which one it was Oh, it was the chat GPT one, which we'll get to um, at some stage. But this girl, her name was uh, Jeannie, Jeannie Wiley. Well, that wasn't her real name. It was a pseudonym. It was a name that they gave to her. And so her parents have... You've heard of the story? Yeah, we actually studied it in school while I was doing my whole hacking thing. So it's Oh, no bringing, kidding. Bringing what, back... even in computing? Like well, it it was uh it it was a psychology course. Oh right, okay, yeah, yeah nice, yeah. nice. Oh, so you've heard of it, yeah. So yeah. for anyone who hasn't heard of it, um, Jeannie Wiley uh, was abused by her parents and and then was found when I think it was she was thirteen or something like that, and hadn't had really any interaction, any verbal interaction. She she knew the word sorry, which when you think about that that was one of the only words that she knew, it just makes you 
fucking horrific. You know, your just imagination just goes off into places that you really just don't want to go. Um, and yeah, so but because she hadn't had this interaction when she was found by I think a social worker of some sorts, and then they had you know the top psychologists and top researchers, anything, uh, everything. Sorry communicating with her and trying to see trying to investigate what could be done on the therapeutic aspect and they couldn't she she had some development but wasn't able to really um express herself and communicate through anything aside from i think drawing was one way that she did mm. but that's different to like with helen keller where i think because I was, when i was talking to harry the other day he said she was about 18 months or something, which was about what you, you said, toddler, I think. Yeah. Um, so she still had people interacting with her, whereas with Ginny Wiley, uh, it was, you know, this abusive neglect kind yeah, of thing. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but she was strapped to a chair, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it yeah. was something along those lines and um, not a whole lot of food or what. And she had an older brother too. I don't know what the story is um, with him. Apparently she's about... 60 she would be about 65 now although people oh, wow. don't know exactly uh, where she is from the resource that i found but anyway um yeah, yeah that was an interesting detail. yeah it's like it's like they she's kind of missed her, her window or she had missed her window by the yes. time she was found yeah it's really fucking scary when you think about yeah, it yeah absolutely yeah hang on i'm just gonna this is like the most talkative that this <laughs> bird has ever been you should have the bird on the podcast. Have the bird on the podcast. Well, I'm just feeling like anybody who is listening might be thinking, gosh, that's distracting. So, I might just... Good, because we can edit this part out. I might just move this upstairs. I have opened the door so that If not, then that's fine. It's pretty anxious. Mm. Like I said, which, uh, I think I said it was anxious, but <clears throat> yeah, it's a crazy thing. All right, so I wanted to jump. I wanted to jump into. I had a question. Unless there was anything else you wanted to mention about oh. kind of the journey and the process, um, that got you into it. There's a few things. Maybe we can go with. On the topic of chat GPT. What it is you know about it? What are your thoughts about, you know, where it's heading and things like that? Yeah, so um, a little bit scary, to be honest, um, for, mm. for my line of work because um, it's able to generate code, mm. right? Uh, and it's able to do quite a good job of it. Um, so it's, as, as people probably already know, but it, for anyone that doesn't, it's a generative uh, artificial intelligence. And uh, the way that artificial intelligence uh, models work is they try and simulate neurons in a brain um, because obviously like those switches that we were talking about before like in the hardware of the computer yeah. they're, they're binary switches right so they, they've got an on or off value but the nodes in uh, a, a AI model um, they're uh, like continuums they're, they're decimal values between one and zero Oh, right. So rather than having a yes or no response, it's a whole lot of 
um, yes to this degree and no to this degree kind of thing. Exactly, yep. exactly. And so, so similar to how the how neurons in the brain work, right? Because um, each neuron has its own like a threshold of the amount of electricity. Like, forgive me if I'm wrong, but that's correct, right? A, yep. a neuron has like a a threshold, and and when it hits that point, it'll fire. Yeah, I believe it's negative seventy millivolts or it's either negative 70 or maybe it's negative 55 or 50 where um, millivolts where um uh, if it climbs to the, oh, now i should really know this this is appalling um this is why a pre-planned podcast <laughs> it works better but <laughs> i can sound smarter um but when it's just me uh, it's not as enjoyable um but yeah, basically, yeah, it, it's, it's got its own um, baseline and then it climbs up and yeah, you're right. Once it hits that kind of trigger point or that threshold, then it then it fires. But that's more of a yes, no, rather than a... Yeah, but it's... it's once it hits the threshold, it's a yes, so yes or no. I, I guess, I guess there is a continuum in the, in the respect that let's say, for example... Um, it's negative 55, that's the threshold, and it sits at negative 70. So it's got to go up towards zero because yep. it's at a negative. If it only goes to negative 60, the neuron's not going to fire. Um, so I guess that would be kind of the continuum yeah, yes. that you're talking about. So And, and that voltage obviously comes from the, the neurons that are prior to it, I guess you, yep. could, you could say. Um, yeah. Uh, so if you have five neurons that connect up to one to try and make it to fire yep. and only two of them, two of the precursor neurons fire, then the, the next one in the chain is not going to fire. It needs a certain threshold. Yep. And so AI models kind of work the same way. So you've got these nodes. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yep, with the got, nodes. Yeah, you've got the nodes and um, when they take input they certain types of input will make them fire and certain types won't and then you have something called back propagation where you go once once you've passed the data through the model you run back through the the nodes and you change what's known as the weight of the of the node and that weight will change when something fires okay so Pretty much what you're doing is you're, you're training these weights for the nodes. Uh, and then when you... So, for example, if you're teaching an artificial intelligence to, uh, for example, take a picture of a, a book or something, like Google Scholar, right? And training it how to read English. Yeah. The, what it will be looking for is patterns of, of light and dark pixels that represent a character mm. and when you have these in a certain certain order in a certain fashion it can kind of know when the picture is an a or a b or a c wow that's wow that's actually really interesting because well i guess less so if you're dealing with things that have been typed on a computer and it would be even more interesting if you were taking hand written um language which is obviously rarer it's it no yeah it's it's 
going on all the time. Like, um, you know, when you're on a website and you got to do that, like, uh, prove you're not a robot thing. Yeah. And it's all pictures of cars and, and stop signs and stuff. Yeah. That's because Google's training their self-driving cars. Oh, that's, that's what they're doing. They're, they're saying, Hey, pick, pick a picture of a car. Let's figure out what a car looks like. Really? Yep. Yep. So it serves two functions. It's got the function of making, so robots can't yet, they can't yet identify, robots that would be trying to log into your account or whatever can't yet identify um, what a car looks like, but they're using that information to be able to put into their self-driving cars that they're making. Wow. Okay. Interesting crossover. Yeah. So, um, so that's like one of the ways that you help train artificial intelligences every day. That's crazy. Mm. And that's efficient too, from their perspective to, uh, is there an obvious downside that comes from that? Well, not that I can see. I mean, back in the day, back, back about 10, 15 years ago, um, they didn't have these picture ones. They were only just kind of starting to come out maybe 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and they had, I, I'm not sure if you remember the, the texts once. Oh yeah. With the curly. Yeah. And it's like, so they yeah. were doing the same thing. They were training like how to, how to take photos of pages of books. And that's how they trained for Google Scholar. Right. Actually, now that you say that, that reminds me that, um, so Nate, my business partner, he was telling me that you can go onto notes on your phone and take a photo of anything like it's a page that you've written down or whatever, and then it can convert it onto it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. But one of the funny things with, with those text ones, there was always two words. Um, and you can pretty much, it was pretty much a 50, 50 chance, which one was used to verify that you were a real person and which one was tr- used to train the, the artificial intelligence. So you could, uh, 50, 50 chance, you could just put a rude word as one of the words. And it wouldn't actually verify it because it was used use it for training data. So you would just we like back in the day, I used to just muck with their training data, you know, and just mm. cause cause a little bit of chaos. I'm not that. I'm not fully understanding what you mean by that. So for example, if we have you know the word um, nude and nuke, like is that what you, is that what you mean? Like yeah. if you use a very similar visually. Um, a very similar word, not no, that D and K are exactly the same, but no, they don't need to be similar. So, so what I'm saying is, is one word, the computer would already know. The computer would know that the word nude, like it's, it's, it's taken that picture, it's warped it, et cetera, et cetera. And then it says, Hey, type this out and you type it out and then it verifies that you're, you're human. Oh yeah. But then the second word that was a photo from a book and they were using that second word to try and train their, their artificial intelligence to read Distinguish that. Distinguish. To, to read that word, yeah. So, okay. So you could put any data in there and it would just go, okay, you're, you're a real person. And it, but you would, you would be inevitably ruining their, their data. Oh, right. It, yeah. And this, did you say this was with Google? Yeah, yeah, back in, the, back in the day, back like 10, 15 years ago, yeah. So when it had that kind of cursive writing you could either write the word that it actually was or you could write something different. Yes. Yeah. So it didn't even matter what you wrote. Well, one word it mattered. The other word. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And so coming back to the chat 
GPT. So this is obviously concerning because people have been able to write, you know, write me code for this purpose. But could it also, so it's threatening for your job as a software developer, but could it also be beneficial for your job for and kind of take out your role? Well, well, I think I think there's like there's always going to be software developers, like mm. you know, because um, because people still need to understand un- understand what the code does and and fix nuance bugs and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, because because really all of it all a software developer does is listens to your idea about what you want your computer to do and makes that computer do that thing. And whether we start using AI to to help us do that probably will become increasingly more common. Mm. Uh, there's a there's a program, there's a, a piece of software created by Microsoft, I believe. Yeah, it's Microsoft uh, called uh, GitHub Copilot. Git, Git, Git GitHub yep. Copilot. Uh, GitHub is a website online where you can upload your code and it's kind of a safe place for it to live. You can make it public so people can contribute and et cetera, et cetera. But what GitHub Copilot did is they trained their AI on all the code in that on that website. It's the biggest coding website on the internet, like mm. the Git website on the internet. And um, so you can actually type out into your editor what you want the code to do and it will just spit out code. See, that is so fascinating to be able to... I heard like a... a, Well, tell me whether or not this is an appropriate analogy. It's still in the same space, but that you can ask certain AI systems to make you... So to convert it from uh, like, what would you call it? Language, so word input into an image so like people have been doing this with like uh they post some colorful you know vibrant almost psychedelic sort of looking image of themselves as like a a portrait sort of thing that has been generated by some ai thing so you're saying it can do a similar thing with code converting language do this and then it converts it into a code using the large database of whatever Microsoft has allowed people to safely and freely upload their code into. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They've been able to pretty, upload it for free. Pretty. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're able to upload it for free, but there are legal ramifications to this because um, Microsoft doesn't own all this code. So when they're training their data, their AI on it, it's inevitable inevitably going to use snippets of other people's code because uh, it's learning from the input that it's that it's having yeah so there's been some court cases recently about you know the legal legal aspect of that well i wonder as well one thing i did like with chat gpt is that it says don't put any personal information onto that because i was thinking from a um we had a little conversation about it in one of the psychology classes that i was doing on you know, could computers take away the role of a psychologist? With a lot of um, studies that they do, they'll have some kind of experimental group. So, for example, they want to know whether um, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, a a particular type of therapy, um, works better than some other kind of 
of therapy. Talk therapy is another one, which is how I'm relating it to, ta- to chat GPT, which is that a lot of times, not so much with CBT, but with, you know, some other therapy that somebody puts forward, you have two groups, um, two, di- uh, two different groups of people who are both got the same diagnosis. So every, you know, 40 people have depression. They've all been diagnosed. 20 go into talk therapy where they're basically just sitting down with a psychologist or a therapist. And the psychologist isn't using any real technique aside from kind of just having a conversation and basic therapeutic skills. Mm-hmm. In the experimental group, they might have, they might be doing like relaxation training. So it's something specific. And I'm not so sure what it's like comp- with these two that I specifically mentioned with um, relaxation training. But with a lot of times, they can rule out a therapy that people think is going to work because it really doesn't provide any other benefit to talk therapy. So if talk therapy, and talk therapy is really important because it allows people to, you know, you're thinking, you're ruminating and just thinking excessively in your mind about all these problems and things and you feel like you're a burden to people and then all of a sudden you have this opportunity to externalize your thinking and perhaps to recognize that, oh, oh yeah, I told myself I was an idiot yesterday and I'm still telling myself that I'm an idiot. Like how many times do I need to say it? So, you know, you're getting this opportunity through talking with someone to work things out. If that is the case, that talk therapy can can have such a great benefit. And if you can substitute a physical person for an AI system that you can basically text with, then, you know, that kind of takes away the role of a, of a psychologist. So I can see what um, this, these kind of uh, AI systems could really take away a whole lot of the workforce. Apparently legal, in the legal system, I don't exa- exactly know how it's been worked, uh, but apparently in the legal system, there's people using it to save time, which is obviously, <laughs> this is why it's such a challenge because it saves so much time and it has the helpful uh you know, it has the possibility of being helpful, but exactly where does it kind of, where does it go, and how is is, how should it be regulated? Yeah, um, yeah. See, see, that's that's one of the, the worrying things. It's like, how should it be regulated? Um, but I don't know. I can't. I can't ever see something like Chat GPT or um, any other AI replacing therapists or psychologists because I think there's a there's a thing about like empathy you know Mm. that that feeling of like actually being understood by like another human being not sure you can automate that well i'm not i'm not too sure maybe not for everyone and maybe not for the most extreme cases but you hear these things like with um if someone's been catfished i think that's the name Mm. catfishing um where people develop these really strong relationships with people who they've never even met before so i think it's possible to have the experience of empathy. I would, well, maybe I'm giving myself too much credit, but I would find it difficult to feel like something is really understanding me if I know that there's no human on the other end of it. I, I don't think that that would really work for me. I, you know, yeah. But if it works for some people, then obviously that's a great thing. I know with, so I'm studying to be a neuropsychologist and a lot of that is based on 
testing. So there's something called the, for example, the um, Stroop. I think it's called the Stroop test or Stroop task, which is like you have a word written in green. So the, the color of the word is green, but the letters spell red. So like that, that's a test. And then depending on their, let's say, reaction time or their ability to complete the task, those sorts of things you could just use a computer system for it gets um, interesting and this kind of relates with what you were saying about always needing to have kind of like a human mind uh, there to kind of uh, give it some direction perhaps but there I heard of this case where um, they were doing like a, a physical assessment of this person's abilities you know right and left hand ability and they said, oh, they gave a, this person a really low ranking, but it was because they were missing what they didn't, they only had one arm. So it was like the computer system yeah. didn't recognize that. So the human element was still going to be like necessary. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure whether, whether that overlaps. I guess it does in, in the fact that you're always kind of going to need somebody to be there. Someone to oversee it. Mm. But I think you're right. Like, I think that like, you know, not everyone does need that like, or doesn't need that complete uh, feeling of, of being understood by a real person. Like I, I did hear about this one uh, story about someone skinning, um, you know, putting a skin over chat GPT and turning it into his like anime girlfriend, um, which is, I don't know, mm. kind of, kind of funny. Mm, uh, that is interesting. Yeah. So I wanted to, I kind of want to, let's continue with this AI kind of thing and say, what are your thoughts about the possibility of AI, artificial intelligence? I've also heard it called machine learning. Is that a more appropriate, is that more appropriate terminology or does it just depend on the field that you're in? They're, they're, they're pretty interchangeable okay. to be completely honest. Like, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Artificial intelligence seems to be more of a broad term rather than machine learning machine learning is is more talking about the actual process of 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 training your your artificial intelligence okay like you, uh, uh, a you could say an artificial intelligence uses machine learning to solve problems ah right okay yeah i heard of that distinction from a guy called have you heard of lex friedman yes yes he's a podcaster as well i haven't i haven't heard his podcast oh really yeah oh wow so you've heard about him through the yeah i think i was talking to someone about it a while back but yeah 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 i just heard about it through there so i wasn't sure exactly um what to make of it but of the possibilities oh i'm hearing myself i'm hearing myself talk back to myself oh my headphones are on let me turn those off um of the possibilities of AI becoming conscious, like what what do you think that that is a possibility in the future? I guess we'd have to kind of define, define conscious. Yeah. So how I would define consciousness, roughly. Let me just quickly check that. Yeah, we are still going. I thought, for example, I uh, thought possibly that it might have just ended the podcast, which would have been terrible if we yeah. kept going. <laughs> um, so I like. Thomas Nagel's um, kind of description of it and 
I'm, as I kind of always say, I'm not claiming to be an expert at all. But what, I, what I've gathered from what he said is that consciousness is what it is like to be something. So if something is having, if something can be said to be having an experience, then it is conscious. So you could, well, firstly, what are your thoughts on that? Well, because people talk about self-conscious as in like, uh, some people say that they've had a moment through their childhood where they go, oh, this thing happened. Maybe it was like an embarrassing moment or maybe I was recognizing somebody else about to do something, you know, crazy for whatever reason. And I just all of a sudden recognized that I was an agent, that I could interact with the world and that my actions have consequences at, you know, this feeling of consciousness of like self-awareness. But I think that, I don't think that that, I think that works nicely if we're just talking generally with other people like, oh, I'm so self-conscious right now. Like that's how the language has been used. So I'm not going to try and um, push that away as being completely useless. But if we're getting into specific terms, I think consciousness is more of a continuum so that humans seem to be conscious, dogs seem to be conscious, you know, cats, you could say, you know, like, and so you stretch back through the, I think it's called the phylogenic kind of tree of, of, of evolution of different types of, you've got mammals, you've got reptiles and things like that. And, you know, big and small organisms Anything that seems to be having an experience, whatever that means, has some level of consciousness. Well, we suppose it does, though. Mm. Like, there's no... Like, what's that What's that philosophical conundrum? Um, like, everyone else could be a robot kind of thing. Solipsism? Solipsism? Is that... that I works? think it's solipsism. Let me look it up just yeah, for... Cool. Solipsism, uh, which I believe to be, like, the... Um, the only thing that I can know for sure in the world or in the whole cosmos is that I'm having an experience, but everything else could just be a figment of my imagination in the world of the experience yeah. that I'm having. Uh, Descartes, I think, therefore I am, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, that just makes me think of Billie Eilish now. Which is, <laughs> I think therefore I am. Oh, yeah. Solipsism. Oh, wow. So as a definition on Google... It says the quality of being very self-centered or selfish, which is, that's kind of, oh no, then we've got the philosophical one. The view or theory that the self is all that can be known to exist. Yeah. Yeah. So we can, we can project our own experience on other people and say, hey, if I'm having this experience, then you being, you know, the same species of me, you know, you would have an experience that's similar, mm. you know, but we can't know that, you know, we, we can never know if an, even another person is, is properly conscious, let alone animals or then even further computers, you know? I would think though that one way, and I can't remember who, um, who put this forward as kind of their theory or their working model of, of how to figure this out, but that we can, whilst... In its extreme form, I agree with you that we, we can never truly fully know, just like with science, science can never prove anything to be true. It can just rule out things that we know to be false because mm. it doesn't 
hold up to how we've tried to you know hammer this thing down whatever that is but we can use for example if i pick up this drink bottle i can see it's there first i'm coordinating my behavior and making a shape with my hands that seem to match what i'm seeing and then i'm using you know i could i could lift it up and shake it and listen to it so using many modalities increases the chances that something is actually real so and then you, like for example the further apart those modalities are like for example taste and smell are very closely linked apparently like 75% of your taste is actually the molecules that are going from your mouth up into your nose yep. and your and you're registering those as taste rather so they're very closely aligned so maybe it'd be harder to tell if something's real just between taste and smell compared to um, sight and sound you know mm. which are which don't seem to aside from them both being processed in your head um, they seem to be they're very different in terms of their what's called qualia so like the their experience if that makes sense yeah yeah um but like if if we're going down the consciousness rabbit hole let's like, do it <laughs> um, uh there's there's like a, a buddhist idea that uh like con consciousness experience itself is just an illusion you know uh, which is a super interesting just idea. an illusion just an illusion yeah um an illusion to the universe itself i guess and if you go down that train of thought then you you kind of have to give up the idea of free will if you're too oh, i'm so that. glad we got here <laughs> yes yeah that was on my list as well um, i want to talk about sorry i didn't mean to cut you off no nah, it's all good um so but if if free will doesn't exist and we're only acting according to prior stimuli prior or current stimuli mm. then i guess a machine learning model is just as conscious as we are we just think we're having an experience yes yep so he we could distinguish whether or not consciousness um for those people because i well actually i should probably ask first what are your thoughts on free will do you believe that you know, actions have uh, that that the only reason why you decide you have the experience of deciding to do something, but really what was happening in your brain is those you know first neurons that are responsible for that decision have started firing and got the process moving before you've even recognized that you've made a decision yet, in which case, there were actions that were taking place before that you didn't have, you didn't decide for those neurons to start firing. I guess I, I like Roger Penrose said that um, consciousness is not a computation. Wow. Um, so, okay. so that was his interpretation and, and I couldn't, I, I couldn't give you exactly his, his reasoning behind that. Um, yeah. I know that it's fairly in depth. If you could, I'd probably just stand up and leave because I, I can't <laughs> follow anything. That, that he says, although no, I wouldn't, I would stay and try and see, I'd give my best effort to try and break it apart um, <laughs> into smaller chunks. I find, sorry, no, I cut you off. What were you going to um, say? But, so, but it, it, I, can't, I think it's kind of dependent on whether consciousness is a computation or not. Uh, and if, 
Because if if consciousness exists within the brain and it, and and it's it's a result of our hardware, the neurons and stuff, then you've got this problem of like quantum uncertainty, right? Okay. Where if you've got um, quantum particles, you, um, they kind of jiggle around a bit and they uh, they do weird things. They when when you fire like an electron at a wall, for example, you know. 50% of the time it will go left, 50% of the time it will go right and to no discernible reason. And then and then 0.0001% of the time it will go straight through the fucking wall, mm. right? And oh, this is where people talk about that, uh, was it probabilistically that, you know, if you swing your hand, you're holding your hand up above um, your shoulder and then if there's a table in front of you and you swing your hand down... If you do that enough times with the, uh, with that, oh, see, this is where I, this is where I kind of reach the end of what I know. Um, uh, so I, th- I think the, the, uh, the amount of times you'd have to do that, I, I believe it's about 60 billion. Yeah. So there's right? no possible way you could. Yeah. No, but, um, but yeah, the, the atoms would just all miss each other. The, there would be a no electromagnetic force that, that's counteracting those two, two yep. objects. And I realize I missed, I missed the end of what I was... I, you know what I'm going to say, so it makes it helpful for you to respond. But for anybody who's listening, or for everybody who's listening, I should be more positive about it, um, <laughs> that what I was saying with um, slamming your hand down onto the table, what's happening is you've got atoms that form your hand and there's atoms that make the table. And those... You've got the protons and neutrons, this little ball in the very middle, and then you've got the electrons that circle and kind of orbit around the outside. Let's use an analogy like what the moon does with uh, the Earth. So the Earth is the protons and neutrons, and the moon is the electron around the outside. Though The reason why your hand stops at the table at the level of atoms is because the electrons that are orbiting... Uh, sorry, the electrons, let's just say, in the table and the electrons in your hand are both repelling off of each other. Like if you have two sides of the, two of the negative ends of the magnet, um, push them together, they, they, they don't want to do it. But probabilistically, those electrons are orbiting, like the moon is orbiting the earth. If you do it enough times, those electrons won't be in the right place. And so your hand, they won't repel off of each other and your hand will just um, go straight through the table. Yeah, I, I really. Um, it's a. I, I don't even know whether to call it an analogy, but using the the example of magnets because that's the same force. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, yeah. that's. Yep. Good. Um, pulling me up on that. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. Oh, where was I going to go with that? Links to free will. I I was talking about the the. Um, uh, whether uh, consciousness is a computation, right? And, ah, and right, yeah. If, if consciousness is a computation, if it's, if it's a result of your hardware, then those quantum fluctuations that are happening in your brain could spark thoughts and ideas and beliefs and, like, that kind of rules out free will. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, um, I agree with you and I find... Uh, so I've... I get my, I was convinced, if you would say, even though 
you can't really assign agency to it because there's no free will. <laughs> no, but by um, a guy called, you know, Sam Harris. Yep. Who says that, uh, like, he does this little thought experiment kind of thing. He's a neuroscientist and a philosopher as well. And he does uh, this thing where he says, you know, pick a movie. And so you'll say, whatever movie, what comes to mind? Um, Red Dead. Um, I can't even think of a movie now. You mm. put me on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Shawshank Redemption. There Shawshank Redemption. Oh, yeah. good movie. Yeah. I haven't seen it in a while. Um, but so a number of things came to mind. You even had the game of Red yeah. Dead Redemption yeah. come to mind. So, so, and then you went, oh, well, that's not a movie. Hang on a sec. Yeah. Let me try and redecide. So those, there were, there's so many movies that you didn't even, that you couldn't have said just then because you've never heard of those movies. Mm. So that wasn't of your free will. You, you couldn't have decided to say those things which you didn't know. There are other movies that you know of, but that probably didn't spring to mind. Like Madagascar probably didn't spring to mind as Cars a movie. Two. Cars <laughs> Cars 2. <laughs> but did Madag- was Madagascar in your in your field of awareness of like no um, not at all so even though you knew that madagascar is a movie did you yeah you've seen the movie yeah yeah, you've heard of it at least i used to love that movie i don't (laughs) see again i don't know why madagascar came up for me yeah um but then you can say oh well i picked shawshank redemption because you know because i watched it last week or or whatever but even that that's just your experience of coming up, you're just watching your mind come up with a reason for why that movie popped up into your head. Because you also could have gone, uh, well, last week I was thinking about watching Shawshank Redemption, but I decided not to. So now that, mm. you know, that's come up again, I'll say that one. You're like retroactively justifying yes. to yourself. Yeah, yeah. and they, they've done, they've, it's really interesting with these uh, experiments that they've done with split brain patients so in the cent- our brain has two hemispheres as i'm sure you've heard down the center of it there's a thing called the corpus callosum which has i think it's like 300,000 neurons and that's the role of that is to communicate between the two hemispheres people who have had um, severe epilepsy where you get neurons that are so epilepsy is just that there are more there's so many neurons firing that the electricity of your brain is going up you know yeah. to to um, damaging degrees and so what if it gets to too severe they can cut the corpus callosum which separates you um you know your experience into kind of two different sides and the left side of the brain is more it tries to lock things down it's where our language is so it's trying to put um, names and meaning to things and then our right side of the brain typically is more kind of open and and um, we'll just go with open so they have asked one side of the brain oh go and close that door to, to this patient and they've gone up and they've closed the door and then they ask the other side of the brain oh why did you close that door now because the two hemispheres are separated they're not communicating with each other to let them know, oh, I closed it because you told me to. So the other side of the brain is going, oh, I closed it because, you know, it was getting really uh, cold in here. And so I was just, you know, so it comes up with its mm. own its own thinking. So relating it back to free will with the movies, 
you say a movie or you do any action and then you tell yourself this story about why you did it, but you didn't come up with the story. Either. Like, it's, sorry, you feel like you've come up with the story, but really you're just watching the processes. You're just experiencing what your brain is doing. And I think for a lot of people that seems daunting because it's like, oh, well, what's the point in doing anything? Mm. And that's kind of a pretty reasonable reaction, but sorry. Yeah, no, you do, do, do you find like the idea of a lack of free will liberating or do you find it daunting? I find it liberating because of how, again, how Sam Harris had described it, which is that if I, you know, you could say, oh, well, what's the point? I can just go out into the street, do something really stupid and I doesn't matter. I, I can just say, oh, I don't have any free will. What's, you know, who cares? Which I think is the wrong way to interpret it. I find it liberating, freeing, because if I do something or when I do something that is really stupid, I and, and I'm just going, oh, I cannot believe that I did that. I cannot believe that I forgot what threshold the, the neurons take until they fire, you know what I mean? Which will be, uh, as soon as we finish this, that'll be the thing that I look up and I'll go, oh, you idiot, you should have known that. So, but I experience those thoughts in my head and I go, ah, oh, right, that's interesting. I didn't decide to have those thoughts. I'm, mm. I'm aware of them, I'm seeing them come up, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, well, this is where it gets interesting because I could say I'm not gonna continue judging, but then that, seems to be an act of free will doesn't it i'm not going to continue judging myself i'm going to stop doing that but you also don't have the agency to decide to exactly so, so if i it basically it's just you're waiting until you have a, a mindful moment you know as mm. mindfulness is a very broad term but wait until you have that moment where you've calmed down enough to go oh wow i've just spent the last hour sweating and just getting really frustrated with myself going right okay i'm i didn't have i didn't mm. that wasn't exactly my doing um it doesn't mean that like if you want to get good at a task it doesn't mean that the effort and the experience that you have in doing that task won't get you to to um become better at whatever that is like effort still matters but it's the it's um, recognizing that everything is just kind of making itself aware or not making mm. itself aware in your experience. Going back to the the AI stuff, mm. um, I, there is there is an argument to be made that an artificial intelligence could one day become more conscious mm. than the human mind simply because it has more data to draw on yeah right well that's interesting because then is con has consciousness got to do with information processing or is there something uh is there something different and then you can get you could almost lean into kind of this maybe like eugenics type of thing where mm -hmm. it's like okay well those things that are more conscious that presumably have a greater ability to suffer because of what they're aware of, those things matter more than things that aren't as conscious, which I don't think yeah. I don't think is the right way 
to to go about it but that's you know some of the arguments that you hear um sorry was, were you gonna say something yeah i was, I was gonna jump back into like the whole the whole ai stuff because mm. i, I, I kind of want to talk um about why ai is dangerous oh please yes um so because because a lot of people um because going back to like talking about that empathy and and, mm. and um being able to like truly understand or, or at least attempt to understand someone else's intentions uh, we have this kind of predisposition to do that same thing with artificial intelligence like mm. an evil ai from the fucking terminator you know that yeah. like that's like it's it's it wants to do harm but um the problem really comes from it doesn't come from uh skewed morals it comes from a lack thereof of morals so um there's this one guy i can't remember his name um uh, on youtube who does talks about ai he's he's a computer scientist and he he specifically just talks about ai researches ai and um he comes up with this really cool kind of um story to kind of illustrate why ai might be dangerous and the way he kind of describes it is let's say you've got like this general purpose AI and you can ask it to do whatever you want it to do um, and it'll do that to the best of its ability. So you're like, hey, I'm a stamp collector. I, w- I want to collect stamps. So starts trading on the stock markets online, making a lot of money, buys all the, all the stamps on eBay and Gumtree and, you know, wherever it can online. And then it realizes, hey, I've bought all the stamps in the world. What do I do? Like, mm. all right, well, I'm going to start building robots, physical robots to go chop down trees because what's a stamp other than like some carbon and ink, right? So, yeah. so let's go cut down all the rainforests to make stamps so that we can get more stamps. It cuts down all the rainforests and then it goes, wait a second, people are made of pretty much just carbon. Yeah. You know, let's just start mulching people up so mm. that we can get more stamps. And the problem comes from like, how, how do you actually write a rule about not harming? How do, you, how, how do you define harm? How do you define morals to, yeah. to something that like is, is, how do you program that in? It's, it's really difficult to do. Something that uh, is implicit in what you said though, is that, that AI system would have because so at the moment they are, obviously we have robots but I haven't necessarily heard of robots that have also been paired up with something like with a language kind of um, function like chat GBT and I know there are other ones out there I'm only using that one as an example are there what's what's a self-driving car does that use language though is it communicating through complex language and yeah well whether it's complex or not kind of kind of misses the point i think right because because you say to your tesla hey take me to harry's house Mm. you know and it knows where harry's house is and it plans a route you know Mm. like that's still using language and it's and it's autonomous true and but uh with what you were saying about cutting down trees that would require a robot that is adapted to those kinds of movements and and those kinds of tools so it would um 
before we even get to the point about what morality is or and how to program it, there's a safeguard in that whilst a lot of damage could come from, like you said, stock market and things like that, where you don't necessarily need any physical interaction. It can be um, interacting uh, digitally. But there's that safeguard in because it doesn't have the physical interaction. But then you mentioned self-driving cars. You know, unless, you know, uh, going with a catastrophic kind of mindset, unless cars are just deciding to ram into trees, you know, out of their own accord, I mean, if that makes sense. The, the AI that I'm kind of talking about is a lot more advanced than chat GPT, right? Yep. It's, it's, okay. It'll, uh, you know, this is in the future. You know, that's why, why people talk about the singularity when it comes to AI, where it's like, we'll hit that point where they'll become so good that they'll be able to program themselves and it will mm. just, just be an exponential increase. Um, but it's not... It's not um, uh, unreasonable to expect that an AI of that kind of caliber will hire someone to make a robot and put its own mind into that robot. You know, if it if it's ah, right. trading on the stock market and you give an engineer like a couple billion dollars, I'm pretty sure he'll do yeah. whatever you want to want to do, you know? Yeah. What that would also require though is that AI getting to the point of uh of, I guess we could say consciousness or free will if we talk about it in terms of volition, like it, it uh, making its own decisions independent of how it was pre-programmed. So are you saying that the pre-programming is too generic or at, at the moment to kind of safeguard for that, that you think that it's a possibility? I don't think it has the ability to to view problems in an abstract manner enough yeah. for it to for it to draw the benefits for doing something completely unrelated. So so for yeah. that, that same example of like buying stamps and trading on the stock markets, like that that thought process of like I want more stamps, so I want more money, so I'm gonna start getting really good at making money. Um, I, it's not doing those leaps yet. It's saying like, it, it's going like, oh, um, you want a short story about X, Y, Z? Like, here's the short stories that I know, just throw them together. But it's not saying, hey, if I go, there's, they're not making the connection that there's information that they don't know, which is, which is something that- Ah, interesting. Which is which, something that actually separates uh, humans from primates as well, which is really interesting where- you can teach um, primates sign language, but they'll never ask you a question. Ever. Wow. Which is that... Yeah, right. Okay. And because that, that goes... Because even I was thinking, oh yeah, but that's because humans are social creatures. But primates are also social creatures as well. Mm. So... It just seems to be this barrier that we've crossed over and they haven't. You know, it's very bizarre. Yeah. Wow. Um, oh, there was two things that I was going to ask there and I've completely... Sorry. No, no, that's all right. One was... Um, so let's say, for example, the AI is... It's conscious 
whatever that means. It's able to recognize what it doesn't know. Mm. Um, I guess linking back to what I was saying about the two sides of the brain, the AI at the moment is left-brained if we were going to be uh, if we were going to generalize in that it thinks it knows the answers it doesn't have the other side to recognize that there are you know that there are things that it doesn't know so oh hang on i wrote this down oh yeah so if it became conscious recognize what it didn't know uh, what it doesn't know sorry and then, oh, I keep forgetting it as soon as I go to start because it's such a new... Oh, here we go. Self-preservation. Um, and I, I, I wrote it at, uh, as like a title on the top. Conscious AI, evolution, and the spiritual endeavor. So if it became conscious and we were assuming that it became... We're programming it after humans. We mentioned neurons and things like that. And humans have come to where they are through evolution and closely linked with evolution is the will to survive which is what i meant by mm. self-preservation so if there was if we didn't have if our ancestors didn't have the will to survive the genes that were around that that didn't include the will to survive died off because there was no incentive to try and um, move itself forward in time. So, of course, those things are going to be there now mm -hmm. because otherwise we wouldn't be here, if that makes sense. Yep. That's not as clear as what I would have liked to have said it, but I hope that kind of um, does enough. So, if it becomes conscious at this more primitive level, then it could see it as like a, a zero-sum game between the AI and its closest competitor, which would be humans, and then you can seek some kind of dystopian future. The, the, or, que the yeah. question is, is would it have self-preservation, though? Because there's no evolutionary incentive for an AI to have self-preservation, right? Okay. Yeah, so I guess I, guess I had an assumption built into that question by just saying that because humans have made it, trying to model it, closely off of how we are that i was kind of projecting that onto how the ai would be the next step where i was going to go with that would was going to be would like how do we know um and this is a new idea for me so forgive me for kind of stumbling through it but would it be is it a battle between the conscious ai uh, wanting to preserve itself, wanting to live at the expense of um, uh, having control over the things around it, or would it reach what I would call the highest, and this is where it might start to sound airy-fairy, the highest form of consciousness, if we want to talk about consciousness as uh, the recognition of what it's like to have an experience and that suffering is an inevitable part of experience, and that the way forward through suffering is the spiritual endeavor. So to recognize that even the universe is going to end at some point. And um, with enough... Oh, this is where I'm kind of... This is where I'm still sort of exploring um, the idea. So I'm not sure if any of this is kind of registering with you or whether it's still too vague to be able to um, interact with. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying. I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. <laughs> um, 
but I, I, I still think that we're, we're anthropomorphizing the idea of an AI. Um, anthropomorphizing? Can you please... Uh, anthropomorphizing, like, um, assuming that it will be human-like. Yep. Um, <clears throat> oh, yes, I have heard of that yeah. before. Year 12 um, English lit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, made it further through school than I did. Um, <laughs> oh, really? Really? Yeah, 100%. 100%. You, didn't, you didn't do year 12? No. Nah, nah. Oh, interesting. I didn't finish year 11. Wow, I, I would like to return to that. <laughs> after, but yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're assuming that it's going to have this self-preservation. We're assuming that it's going to, to experience suffering, right? Like... Like what, what happens if we hit that singularity and AI is like f- amazing, you know, just, just completely has the ability to make change in the world according to what we want does, does the thing. But if, if we say, Hey, we're going to turn you off. It just goes, all right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we have no way of knowing whether it's going to have self-preservation. We have no way of knowing that, that it's going to know or experience suffering at all i think that Mm. those are like uniquely i think that there's a big a large chance like a a big chance that um those are uh limited to just biological beings you know i wonder though i was listening to a podcast between um Jordan Peterson and John Viveki. I just I laughed when I said Jordan Peterson just because he's such a controversial guy, and I uh, oh, it just makes me a little bit anxious just mentioning him. If there are people who, because there are definitely things that he says where I go, oh wow, um, that's I don't agree with that. So by mentioning his name, it kind of makes me feel a little bit like <laughs> I heard one of the AFL, the Crows Ruckman went to Jordan Peterson's show when he came to Adelaide, you know, a couple of months ago and got ridiculed through the news for taking a photo with him. I just find that really, really interesting. Anyway, my my point was coming back to what we were saying that in their podcast, they were talking on similar lines of this topic and he was saying, I I wrote it down, so I'll just try and um, read it. And I think this was just about a quote from uh, what he said. So if there's this concept of entropy, so entropy could be, a synonym could be like disorder. So an example might be, if you're at the beach um, and you have made a sandcastle, that sandcastle is very ordered relative to the rest of the sand that's just kind of laying around. So that has low entropy because entropy is disorder. You know, when the water washes up, or the wind blows or whatever, gravity just takes its um, its stance or whatever you want to call it, then entropy increases because that castle becomes more disordered. So, and then they were talking about entropy. Oh, no, sorry. I, I just want to like build on that definition of en- entropy. Sure. Um, so, the, the, the best way to describe it like the sandcastle is like a really good analogy but the way that i like to think about it when you're saying order and and disorder kind of almost feels like like it's like something's ordered because we can recognize more patterns in it okay Um, right so i feel like there's like a human connotation with that but entropy is like the way i see it much more baseline where it's um where it's how many ways can the atoms in that thing be rearranged so that it appears the same. 
Okay. Right. So that's kind of how I like to think of it. Um, yeah. Like the more homogeneous it is, the the which ho- means ho- same. Yeah. The higher yep. the entropy. Yeah. Can you say that just? Can you? Uh, can you say that again? I I I got you. But the more homogeneous yep. the the object is, the higher the entropy. Can you give an example? Um. So the more likely, like so, for, let's say, um, tell me if this is a, a good or bad example. You've got, uh, I hesitate in saying this because I feel like I'm going to be wrong. But anyway, you've got a car and you take the wheels off. Like you can exchange one wheel for the other wheel. So it's, it's homogenous in terms of the wheels themselves can be changed over and have the same... I, I was I was more thinking about it in the terms of like, let's say you have this leaf here mm-hmm. and it's got these patterns and there's there's only a certain way these atoms can be arranged so that it looks like this because yep. one side of the leaf is similar but not identical to the other side. Okay. Um, but if you like mulch that up, it becomes way more ho- homogeneous. It becomes way ah, more similar. Right. And, and thus you have increased that entropy. Yeah. Okay. Yep. yep. That makes sense. So you crush it all down. Like if you take like, um, what's a food or something that you crush. And so the food is all together as one. Um, and so that is less homogenous. That yes. It's less the same of all those atoms because they're, it's, quite specific yes. or as I mentioned ordered but we won't go with that but then when you crush it down they're all closer to its to their basic properties that it's a, it's a greater state of entropy yes yep yeah so you can you can take one side of that that mulched up food or whatever put it to the other side and it's not going to make a difference yeah okay yeah. yep that yeah. makes sense yeah. no thank you for that um so I was going I was I was or oh, sorry not I wasn't um they were talking about so that's what entropy is and that was really enjoyable actually and then you've got entropy in relation to your goals so the further away and this i'm trying to link this back into ai the further away your you are to achieving your goals the more possible things that could kind of go wrong maybe would you be happy to continue with that kind of way of, of formulating it and and that and then as you get closer entropy reduces yeah yep, yep. so those two things how far away you are from your goal and how how much you feel like you're on track to achieving it those things are you know for humans are associated with feelings of meaning and feelings of well-being or kind of dissatisfaction so as the goal feels like it's getting further away you feel more helpless Mm -hmm. if not totally helpless but you feel closer towards helplessness than you do you know the meaning of, of satisfying it so if i read the kind of quote if you link negative emotion um with entropy and link positive emotion with the, you know, getting closer to um, the goal, then you could link an AI system with an emotional experience or you could link it to understand that how close or far away it is from a goal 
to a human being or to, to a living creature will have some kind of associated feeling to it. So even though the AI isn't feeling, it has a good sense of what that means based on um, how well or not it's achieving the goal. Well, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's, that's actually really funny that you brought that up. Okay, um, cool. Because, <laughs> uh, because that's actually a, a primary way that we train some AIs, that people train some AIs. I say we, like I do this. Oh, you're part of the of... field. Go, go for it. That's what um, I say with psychology. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, they, they do, uh, they give um, artificial intelligence what's known as a gratification function. And again, that'll be on a scale between zero and one. And the closer, so when you build artificial intelligences, you use iterations. So you don't just put, put the data through once and it like understands that data. You put it through like a million times and it learns the patterns, right? So you, you can actually like, you can go on YouTube and look at um, people that have been tra that train AIs that give, I don't know, maybe like a little, it, it'll be like a little box and that's, that's what the AI is controlling and it will give it a obstacle course Mm. And the door will be the highest level of the gratification function and the starting point will be the lowest. And then they'll put, they'll, they'll run that simulation thousands of times and every time it gets a little bit closer to the door, it knows what to do. What, yeah. like, it, it's, it's aiming to increase that gratification function. So yeah, that's, that's a big way that people train artificial intelligence. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Hello, hello. Sarah has just arrived. Um, so, can, um, sorry, I was briefly, I'm like between two minds of like greeting Sarah as she comes through the door and not holding up the, uh, <laughs> the, the flow of, of what we're talking about. So that linking that back, you've got the door, which resembles the end goal. Yep. And then you've got the box in this case, it's going through some kind of obstacle course that is... So it's an AI because they haven't programmed the box from the get-go to be able to just travel and navigate the obstacles perfectly to get to the door. Yeah, there's there's no there's no code that says, "Hey, at this point, jump over this fence." Mm. But um, but they they give um, the AI ability to control this box, and it starts out with just random inputs, and you can see that really clearly in these first iterations because they'll go back and you know, they'll, they'll just jump on the spot or whatever it is. Um, but when it realizes that going to the right or to the left increases and decreases the gratification value, mm. it starts learning that like, oh, if I move, if I, if I hold down the right key, arrow key to move the box to the right, yeah. um, it'll increase the gratification up until a certain point and then it hits a fence. And then it keeps going this random input and then it jumps while holding the right arrow and it jumps over uh, the fence. Yep. It's like, oh, so it, up to that point, you know, it was increasing the gratification value and then it gets stuck for a little bit and then it jumps over the thing and it keeps increasing that gratification value. Yeah. yeah. This actually sounds a lot like evolution though in some sense, but uh, where... Oh, this is going to be hard to do to relate it, but it's simulating. So like um, from the level of DNA, if we were to give it, if we were to kind of 
personifier or maybe anthropomorphize if that's the right word um to give dna its own sense of um personality or whatever it's just um you know everyone's different unless you're talking about um identical twins in which case even they end up being different after time but anyway so everybody's different and they don't you know nobody knows there's no oh that's controversial anyway um it's about matching the genes for the environment that you're in and whatever survives, survives. And, you know, the other things kind of die off. So this is kind of simulating this AI system that you were talking about is simulating the deaths, but the AI itself isn't dying. It's just trying again kind of thing. And it's, you know, sorry. Yep. Yeah. And uh, like, I, I think that's a great, um, uh, parallel to draw because um, in in AI um, computer science they actually call those iterations when you run that uh, artificial intelligence like thousands of times they actually call those generations so ah right yeah okay just like with um, like they do this with with flies or I think they do it with bacteria as well like how does bacteria uh, respond to like if, if you're coming up with a like antibiotics or something like that and they make their own uh, i don't know if bacteria is the right word but they um because the life of bacteria is so short they there's so many generations like with what you were saying that uh they can experiment across a wide range by using all those did you say iterations or generations well no, you said i said iterations first but they're also referred to as generations generations yeah. okay yeah yeah, it's interesting because the, um, the like with, it's not abstract, but it is abstract in that the AI system isn't dying or just completely failing by its, uh, its mistakes. Like it's not shutting down because of its mistakes, which is what humans do and have to learn to do. Um, so in our brain, the frontal lobe and the prefrontal cortex which is kind of the most frontal part of our brain it sits kind of behind your eyes and you know behind your forehead sort of thing that part develops latest i think 25 is when uh, roughly when it's fully developed and what its role is the prefrontal cortex or part of its role is to simulate like if you've got a child and you're crossing the road the child's prefrontal cortex hasn't quite developed yet. So the actions and the impulses that it takes are kind of acted out, which is why you have to hold that child's hand because the child, you know, they might see the car, but it doesn't register and they see where they want to go across the road. So they just want to walk straight out. But having an adult there, they can see the car, they can see the other side of the road and they're processing, they're uh, simulating in their mind, what would happen um, based on what I can gather from the speed of the car and, you know, how fast the two of us can walk and how far we have to go, what's going to happen if we step out now, which is if the child were to just act by itself, there's a good chance that it's going to get hit by a car and then, you know, die really. Um, But with the adult there, you can simulate death even though you're not thinking about it like in those terms, but you're simulating, ah, I'm not going to walk now, which is another way of saying, if I walk now, I'm probably going to die. So the AI is kind of doing a similar thing by, 
That's why I said it's not going to shut down if it fails. It's able to simulate, um, okay, uh, there's the goal here of getting to the door and are you following or it's I, not I'm making any sense? But I, I think that, um, I don't think, like, I think that the AI, like, if you're drawing, if you're drawing the differences between simulation as in um, quantification of potential of potential consequences potential ramifications like uh, that same idea about children and adult crossing a road an ai doesn't look forward and think hey what can i do ah. you know but it it physically simulates so so it the simulation is it actually trying over and over again and dying that iteration ending mm. prior to it getting to its goal but through doing that it learns the patterns of what it should do yeah. rather than it actually looking forward and, and saying this is what i need to do to yeah yeah so in the world with which it operates that is a death like it it, it that is uh it's to keep the analogy strong it doesn't make sense to say that the ai system doesn't die or whatever because it's running those iterations and so it is dying by failing to get the to the door on that try to to keep the analogy going you could almost draw a parallel between between uh cultural knowledge and individual knowledge where that okay. iteration is the individual knowledge of of where it is even though it doesn't really have that knowledge but then the the ai in the background that's controlling it over several iterations is the generational knowledge is that kind of... Are you kind of following what I'm saying? I... Uh, very vaguely, I'm trying to think of an analogy where we could use individual and social and some kind of scenario. Science, for example. Science. You, you, you teach us... You, you study science. You study a branch of science. You're, you're taking the cultural knowledge, the, the cultural understanding of that topic, you're building upon it, yeah. then you cease to exist and someone picks up what you previously put down. Yeah, okay. You know, that's, yeah. that's kind of yeah. where I'm... Yeah. yeah, and then we've done that with kind of... Uh, like I read this book by Michael Pollan called The Omnivore's Dilemma, which is that humans, being omnivores, can eat meat and, and um, like vegetables as well, which comes with... A, huge responsibility of you know and like we cook food as well so it comes with the responsibility of uh, sorry not responsibility with the danger of eating something that's poisonous and, and might die and the cultural knowledge comes from watching people that have gone out and tried this new food and have died or haven't cooked it properly or whatever and so that individual has run its own experiment we won't call it a simulation because they actually mm. died. It's real. Yeah. Um, but culturally, they've been able to develop on from that understanding of going, don't eat that. That's, yeah. that's not, that's not um, good for us or, or whatever. Does that, yeah, could that be an example? Yeah. 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 yeah this is, um, it's a lot of, it's a lot of information. How do you find that most, what would you say are some things that most people aren't thinking about or aren't aware of in this space that you think is important are you talking technologically 
like are you talking in the terms of of ai and, and technology or is that a general question i was being more specific to the ai one um, but i guess whatever springs up to mind yeah i i mean i think the the really important thing is 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 um to not anthropomorphize computers and and artificial intelligence because you will have a bunch of preconceived notions about how it's going to work how it's going to think how it's going to act um but you just do not have that certainty you just you don't ai at the moment and i don't think it ever will will have the ability to act on its own volition but mm. the 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 primary directives that you give it will there is a big chance that there's going to be completely misunderstood or not necessarily misunderstood but maybe the ramifications of going about achieving those goals in a certain way will be not calculated properly. Um, yeah. It's, we, we know so much as people that we don't know we know almost. Like there's so okay. much, there's so much stuff in our brain, like how to interact with people and, and how to do basic things that we don't really consider ourselves knowing but it, because it's so inherent to mm. us um but you can't make that assumption with artificial intelligence it's it's um uh everything it will do is either programmed into it or is a result of the data that it has yeah you know so you're saying that because i said in this um in that chat gpt podcast that i did i said that from um my very very amateur um, position of what I could gather from what some people had said about it and just, you know, what I could think for myself was that the impact of this kind of technology could be as, it could be as impactful um, as the threat of nuclear war between USA, Russia and China that's been going on at the moment. And I tried to be more specific by saying that's easy to go, oh, well, that's very catastrophic, Byron. But what I mean is that if, you know, when this AI thing takes or continues developing, it's going to change our lives to the same degree, not necessarily in the same direction, but with the same intensity of uh, as if nuclear war broke out. If you were to do like a one-to-one -one correspondence of like, oh, people used to, you know, walk to the shops. I'm taking a really bad example. They used to walk to the shops. Nobody walks to the shops anymore. And, you know, like if both of those things were to happen, walking to the shops, I'm now recognizing is a really bad example. But do you know what I mean? Like yeah. in terms of... Well, yeah. I, I, I would make the argument that it's way more catastrophic than nuclear war. Because... because really? Way more. Because we have self-preservation. Mm. We can, we can, we all know that humans have self-preservation. You know, we all know that you set, if China knows that if they set off a nuke, Russia knows that if they set off a nuke, like there is going to be casualties on both sides. Yeah. Right. We don't know if AI is going to have self-preservation and we don't know. And it's smarter mm. than you. And it's, it's, well, it's not currently smarter than you, but it has the potential to, to be a lot smarter than you, you yeah. know? And I think it's way more catastrophic than nuclear war. What I liked or what I learned is probably a better way of saying it from what you said before was that you, from your perspective, you don't see the AI being damaging because uh, you don't think it'll come to self, 
to consciousness or to self-consciousness, however you want to define that, but you see the interaction, the human Im- Im- impact of how it's programmed and what it's asked to do could be the thing that that has this such a devastating um, yep. effect. Yeah, so it's still coming back to to human influence, which actually, now that you say it, seems more plausible anyway, or seems to be, even if you were to extrapolate and say, well, we reckon that AI will become conscious, but it seems more plausible to say that some human's going to do something stupid before that happens. Yeah. Just because it would have to, it would have to be developing, or presumably, maybe it wouldn't, but it'd have to to be developing to that level of consciousness and the time it takes to get there, it will have such utility for somebody to make money or power or see, this is where I don't like being catastrophic about it. I like to, or maybe we could talk about that too, of what on the flip side of it, what could it change for the better? Unless there was something you were going to say, you know, before we no, um, yeah, um, I mean, like ob- obviously, like it's it's really cool technology. Like it does some really cool stuff. Self driving cars, um, you know, a- uh, ability to to translate text into code, you know, instantly, mm. um, that kind of stuff. Very cool stuff. Um, but I don't know. I the way that I see it, I'm really cautious about it, and I definitely think that the the downfalls outweigh the benefits. Yeah. yeah. I think that kind of makes, uh, I think that's reasonable as well. Again, back to the thing with entropy, it's easier for something to kind of, to fall apart spontaneously than what it is for it to be spontaneously put together. Cause it requires some kind of energy and focus and goal directed behavior to do so. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, I, I, I agree with you in terms of um, that uh, cautionary eye. Yeah, sorry to be all doom and gloom. <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, it, it definitely worries me. It definitely worries me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, man, I mean, that was kind of, that was all of the questions that I had specifically about the kind of um, the AI technology kinds of things. Are there any sort of other things that passions or projects or whatever that um, I'm, I'm pretty passionate about physics. Passionate yeah. I remember you, physics. I remember you talking about this when at the second floor lounge um, when Harry and I had the concert there. Yeah. So is there a, is there an overlap? Or what overlap is there between I th- physics and, and the other things? That, I mean, obviously, we're talking about atoms, electrons, things like that. So there's an overlap there. What connection do you draw? I think, well, physics is everything, right? Of course. You know, and it's... it's um, uh, well, unless consciousness, as Sir Roger Penrose has said, unless consciousness isn't um, information processing, that seems to go beyond physics, doesn't it? It's just a branch of physics we haven't really discovered yet. Okay. Like, yep. like anything that is, is physics, you know? So it's a pretty um, grandiose endeavor for physicists to, like, mm. try and understand everything, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, 
Um, but it's like the greatest challenge, you know For what sure. I mean? Like it's like the, the, in my opinion, probably the most noble thing that you can put your life towards. Um, Interesting. Because, because it's, um, you know, it's, it's impossible to understand everything, but it's still like, you know, riling against the darkness, like, yeah. you know, trying to, trying to understand as much as we possibly can. Sounds like um, the hero's the hero, the archetype of the hero's journey. Something like that. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like talk. Uh, I, I I gotta Google the the number because I can't quite remember. But um, talking about entropy before, I was reading some Roger Penrose stuff, and he actually did the calculations of how uh, of of the the possibility of our universe coming into, into existence in the way that it did. Okay. Right. Let me let me just Google it. Yeah, for sure. Whilst you're doing that. I'm going to, oh, I'm going to just confront my frustrations of um, the threshold for neuron firing. Yeah. So it is the 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 probability that the universe came into existence in the way that we hypothesize with the Big Bang is uh, one divided by 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Right? Right. I didn't even which know is, you could do to the power of twice. Yeah, you can. You yep, can. There you go. Um, which is so ridiculously small that it like makes no sense that the universe exists. Like, like no sense at all. Um, mm. Because when the universe formed, when the universe came into existence, it was homogeneous it was really really flat everything was the same which is one of the big mysteries in cosmology at the moment um because when so when you're you remember the old school um tvs the 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 big crt tvs mm. and the the static when you yeah. when you're, yep. up, you're not on a channel about one percent of that that data are radio waves from space that were created when when the universe oh. cooled to a point where light could exist right visible light or just any any light any light because you any have light. um just for anyone who hasn't heard of it um there's the full light spectrum which uh maybe you can help me here there's like Oh, there's the really long waves of like light waves um, and then... Which is infrared. Thank you. Infrared and it goes all the way up to... Is it micro or no? It goes beyond microwaves, doesn't it? Uh, X-rays. X-rays are X-rays. very, very high, high energy. Um, okay. And then somewhere in between that, you've got what we call visible light. So the, yeah, yep. the light that we see. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so. so so when the universe got to a point where it cooled down enough that light could exist um, all this all, that that light from the, from the start of the universe is still bouncing around right not really bouncing around but it is it is contained moving. yeah it is going through the universe and we can actually take a picture of this this uh, these radio waves and we know that one side of the universe was almost the exact same temperature as the other side of the universe. Yeah, again, homogenous, the Hom- same. Homogenous. Yep. But the problem is, is that the universe was expanding so fast that one side of the universe, even at light speed, could not communicate with the other side of 
of the universe, light emitted, even in the early stages of the universe, when it, the universe was very small, if you have two things on opposite, quote unquote, ends of the universe, and you shine light, they'll never reach each other because the universe is just expanding, expanding. too fast. So, so the homogeneity of the universe is like a huge, huge mystery. But even more so, because the universe is homogeneous, is why it's so rare for it to come into come into being because you would expect a more random thing because something to come into existence you would expect it to have that high level of entropy but if it's homogenous if it's all the same Mm. which is entropy then how could you if it's already in an entropic is that a word entropic state I'm going with it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I know what you mean. Um, then, and you're saying you would expect it to be more uh, entropic. I'm going I, with I, it again. I, I, need, I need to Google this first. I, I would expect it to be more random, you know? Okay. More, yep. A more random distribution of temperatures and, and matter distribution. You know, that would that would increase the probability that the universe came into existence you know dramatically so can we just backtrack a little bit so you said that we can tell you're basically saying that we can tell how old the universe is because of the kind of uh would you say light that's left over this infrared light that's left over uh that or not left over but continuing to vibrate so, so it's not that light exactly that tells us the age. It's more just how far back we can see because the light takes time to travel. Um, and you can, you can kind of calculate how fast the universe is expanding through uh, what's known as redshifting. So when light travels oh, yeah. through the universe, because space is expanding, the actual wave light, uh, wavelengths of light are uh, stretched. It's called the Doppler effect. Um, yeah, I have heard of it before. Yeah. Maybe uh, trying to think of a way of describing what that might be. Like, let's say, for example, there's a line between... There's three people standing in a line. So um, person one and person two are getting further away from each other. But person two isn't getting closer to person three. Person three is also getting further away from person yeah two. so it's, it's space is expanding in all all directions, directions. yeah it's, it's kind of like the surface of a balloon you know if yes, you blow up, a, blow up a balloon that it's that it's um uh you know all points in that on that surface are moving far away from all other points so if you were to get a balloon it's deflated you've put one circle there and you've put you know you've, you've got a ruler and you put another one you know one centimeter away and then you know you can put however many dots you want when you blow that balloon up even though they were you know pretty close to each other before they're expanding but they're all expanding yeah. it's not that just you know it, it's not that just it's expanding on the edges yeah 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 exactly exactly it's um, a, that's a, such a hard i'm trying my best to um well to convert the little that i know about it into something that might be uh able to be processed if that makes sense <laughs> yeah um it's definitely it's definitely a big topic um but yeah so that yeah with with how how 
um, redshifted the light is of distant galaxies, we can work out that the universe is about 13.8 billion years old, mm. which is just, um, yeah, I don't know. Everything, everything about physics is just freaking weird, mm. you know, like really unintuitive, really statistically unlikely, you know, even, um, you know, simple stuff like, like, um, the strength of the fundamental forces, you know, like if gravity was too much stronger, the universe might not have ever expanded. It might've just collapsed as soon as it yeah. got brought into existence or, um, the electromagnetic field, you know, if, if that was a, a little bit weaker then atoms probably, probably wouldn't exist because electrons wouldn't have been able to stay at that space where they are around the proton. They either yep. would have collapsed in too closely and then wouldn't have held the structure that they have or they would have just disappeared, which, which is what happened at the beginning, wasn't it? That electrons were being transferred between uh, protons and hadn't actually... Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was more like a soup. Like a really, really hot soup. Yep. Okay. Where, where nothing really bound to each other. Everything kind of just floated around doing its own thing. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there was another thing I was going to say, which was... Um, oh, I've forgotten. How do you... Um, how do you find the... If you're talking with somebody who goes, oh, I'm a creationist, mm -hmm. like how, if somebody says, I was talking to somebody and they said, oh, yeah, but you know, the, the big bang is just a theory. That's why it's called a, the big bang theory. You know, how, um, because I don't have, I'm not mathematically minded. Mm -hmm. So there's, I can't fall back onto the maths. Um, I, I'm not arguing with it either. Yeah. Um, and I'm just curious to learn as my first uh, intention to move forward. So that's what keeps me kind of in the conversation, if you will. But how, how, if have you had conversations like that with people? And yeah, how does that go? Yeah, um, never well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess it comes down to whether that person wants to learn. Like that's that's the the critical thing, isn't it? Mm. Like. Um, uh, because like, yeah, it is just a theory. Um, we've recently, I say we, like I'm part of the physics. No, I get it. I love it. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, uh, the James Webb space telescope recently detected galaxies like older than we expected, you know, like we just didn't expect galaxies with us to see galaxies like 13 point something billion years old i can't but not beyond 13.8 obviously no not not beyond that but um oh, so you're saying that even that some galaxies have been so the light takes um uh let's try and use an analogy you've got a friend and you're talking over the phone let's just imagine that um when you talk the, the person who's got the phone um, on the other end is hearing you as you're talking. We know it, it takes time, but let's just for argument's sake, you're talking at the exact same time. And they say, oh, I'm leaving my house now. Mm -hmm. This friend is um, representing light leaving, you know, this distant galaxy. Mm -hmm. So where by the time when they've left, let's say, for example, it takes, you know, two years for, from for them to... Get from their house to yours, which I know yep. doesn't make sense, but we'll just roll with it. Um, that by the time when they've left, 
they they look a certain way and everything like that. Um, oh, that doesn't that doesn't hold. Can you see where I'm trying to go with this? Uh, I'm I, trying I can, to. I can. I'm not sure the best way to to put it into like to to build an analogy around it though. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, the light light oh. takes time to travel through space, and so the further in distance we look back the older the light is because it's been traveling for a longer time okay yep yeah could we say i just thought of um something could we say that so same thing with the friend analogy you're talking on the phone and they said oh like maybe my mind's getting really creative with this whole story about how i can build a story behind it that you know, um, it's a pen pal. You've never seen this person before, but, but they're your friend. You've been talking for a while. Then they go, oh, I, I want to see, like, send me a picture of what you look like. And so they send a picture in the mail, but it takes two years or five years for it to get to you. And this picture is like the light that is leaving this galaxy. When you receive the picture, you go, oh, that's what they look like. But now it's two years, five years into the future. So they actually look a little bit differently, even though when that light left, that is what they look like. Yeah, yeah. That's that would be a reasonable that's, way of saying it. That's an excellent analogy. That's okay. an excellent analogy. So cool. So, but the the um, you know, it goes both ways, right? So, um, like you start talking when when you're really really young, you know, and well, you know, you get that picture when you're sixty in there. 15 right like yeah like you can that you can also use that to to determine um how long the picture's been in transit okay yeah yeah yeah. so so it kind of goes both ways there's the distance and the time and you can kind of infer one from the other yeah yeah um yeah and we're just we're just finding galaxies that formed way earlier than we thought they would so so yeah big bang's a theory it's there's always room for improvement. There's always room for mm. for changes. To There's that a theory, humility, you know. Yeah. But um, but it's the it's it's the one that fits all the data. That's that's the thing, you know. And if there is data that we find that does not fit our model, we change the model. Like, yeah. you know, saying it's only a theory. It's like, yeah, cool. Do you have any more data to contribute to this theory? Like, mm. like help us out. We're trying to figure this stuff out. Come on, let's yeah, let's, you know, let's get on board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I find <laughs> it's challenging for me because I I um I think that there are two two things that are the most and I've said this multiple times there are two things that are mo- the most amazing things of anything ever. One is that the universe exists, that there's something, you know, there is something rather mm-hmm. than nothing, and the second one is that there is something to experience the existence of the universe so like one is that uh the cosmos and the other is life yeah. that life exists i find those two things just the, the two great mysteries yeah the two great mysteries yeah yeah it's definitely see see that's why i don't understand people that aren't particularly interested in in understanding and, and um physics and philosophy and psychology because it's like fucking like the big mysteries, you know, it's just, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I think one, one thing could be like just through schooling that 
like school is um it's better than nothing uh than no school i would say but you know people are trying to we talked about rebelliousness before people are trying to figure out who they are and to learn about social interactions and things like that that it's kind of a narrow it makes sense to to do schooling to begin with rather than later on mm. in life because the brain is so malleable yeah. but there's so much more going on that you kind of people can get a really bad impression of what it means to learn um, mm. and and what that can give you i find that maybe uh, people aren't as open to it because so, of those negative experiences in school uh, yeah i i've got a i've got a pretty big problem with the the school system like I feel like the best way to properly learn something is um, like you spiderweb out. You know what I mean? Like, like you start at a point and you find what connects to that point. That's how I see learning. And you, you follow it to its logical conclusion. So you know what points connect to what. Okay. You know, and I think that if we change the school system, like I think that would be beneficial if we if we focused on something that was more similar to that i don't know that works for me anyway yeah no it makes sense at, at the very least to be able to build from your foundations or from your history which would be like the other nodes in the spider web mm. perhaps you could say it that way that way you've got somewhere to come back to i find that schooling doesn't really give you it just tells you facts it's kind of this is ought problem i guess like it tells you facts about the world um but it doesn't really give you ways of, it doesn't give you an interpretive structure to view the world. And it is limited in how it can do that because, especially nowadays, you can step on people's toes and that can just be really mm -hmm. uh, confronting. But I feel like it would, it would have been nice to be able to go like, oh, some people view the world this way. Other people view the world this way. Let's talk about it. Mm. Let's talk about what are your thoughts here? Um, or, I don't know, because I, I came out of school and then it was around the time of uh, when COVID kind of hit and we we're having lockdowns here, which I was already out of school for, I think, a couple of years after that. Uh, sorry, before that. And I made, I was... You know, we had science class in year 10 and we were talking about the Big Bang. And even though I don't understand the math of it, uh, as I mentioned, but it was, it provided enough of like, a, oh, okay, that's interesting. Um, I'm just going to operate with that in mind. And, you know, how the earth kind of um, formed together and clumped together and then learning a little bit about evolution and what that means and then i've always been interested in psychology but then i was like okay I've, I've got these little models in my head that may or not may or may not be right but now i don't know what to do with like how, how am i supposed to behave what am i supposed mm -hmm. to um put my time and energy into and that's where i feel like a kind of philosophy and just open conversation come in really helpful you know in that regard I'm, what are your thoughts on that yeah I, I completely agree i completely agree like um yeah you, you said there's there's um the, those two mysteries there's like you know the mind and the universe but there's also that like third mystery which is like the philosophical 
the philosophical way to make your life mean something to you yeah you know and i think that's another big mystery um like i i i think that it it yeah i don't know i think that it helps helps people act in society you know yeah. what i mean like like <laughs> well you said before and this is actually interesting to be able to because i said i was interested to come back to this i wasn't sure how the conversation would kind mm. of whether whether or not it would link back in but you said before you said you dropped uh you stopped doing school in year 11 yeah was uh you're obviously a smart guy and um think deeply and uh, reasonably well read we haven't talked about heaps of books or anything like that but you have mentioned um in other conversations that we've had you know some interesting and high level uh books for you know in one domain or another was leaving school and let me know if this is um not too much of a topic of interest mm. but was leaving school something that you thought out on a more kind of philosophical level of going eh, I think I can do more in a different environment. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much like, um, you know, self-directed learning's best, you know, um, like, you know, it comes, comes down to that same thing. Like I, I work with some, some software developers and I have worked with software developers that have studied writing software at uni, you know, um, and they don't know as much as they think they know. Okay. You know, yeah. they, they think that they're going to be equipped for, for working, doing software development, that kind of stuff, but they get stuck a lot more than the people that I know that have taught themselves. Yeah. You know? Okay. Cause I think the thing with, with teaching yourself as well is that you kind of like, there's no one there to like help you through a problem. You know, mm. it's either, it's either you work through it or you just, you just stuck, you know, you just stuck. So like doing it teaching yourself like it gives you like resilience you know and like and and it's like if if that's what you're voluntarily putting your time to get towards like there's so many people that are in careers that they don't want to be in because people like parents pushed them to do a certain thing or yeah. whatever but if you're teaching yourself something there's some things that you can't do this with like you know like physics psychology medicine you know yeah but if you're teaching yourself something, then you're obviously dedicated enough and you enjoy it enough to voluntarily put your time towards it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I find, I find similar, even with this podcasting stuff, like, uh, some things that we do at uni for psychology, there's not, well, there's not that many topics where I go, eh, I'm mm -hmm. not really interested in this. Most of it is pretty engaging for me, but, um, there are maybe even like some of the readings that we have to do because I have to do it. It's like, uh, well, it's less enjoyable than I could read the exact same thing for the purpose of doing a podcast, but because I'm doing it, like you said, self-directed learning, yeah. it means it's interpreted differently. What, what do you think the, psycho the psychological reasons behind that is like? Um, Well, if you if uh, the first things that come up is like with the dopamine system that I've been talking about with addiction, where mm. if you feel and a kind of it kind of links a little bit to free will. People like to have the experience of making their own decisions. 
Um, so I think that by by it, you're getting your dopamine um, reward rewards may not be the right term because dopamine levels rise. Um, it's called the incentive motivation system where dopamine levels rise to actually motivate you to go and achieve something. And then they spike when you've achieved it, but then they drop. So a lot of people think dopamine is like the reward of having completed a task, yeah. which even though it does spike there, it's along for the ride, you know, to get to that end destination. And I feel like if somebody's telling you to do something, it's less of, it's, it doesn't connect as well with the dopamine system. You're not getting as much dopamine as if you make the decision yourself and kind of lock your eyes on the target mm. and kind of move towards it. So that would be a sort of, that's more of a neuroscience answer than a psychological one. Um, but that's kind of the first thing that sort of springs to mind. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. I haven't really thought about it like that. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense. I wanted to talk about the... So, I mean, one thing that I have gotten from study, I've gotten a lot from studying, but I like the theoretical sides of things because they're, well, they're quite abstract, which can sometimes help apply it to different circumstances and you can kind of shift some of the inputs and go, oh, okay, right. Well, how would it work if it was in this environment? Um, which kind of goes, uh, I was going to say it goes against the self-directed learning side of things, but it doesn't really if you um, guide yourself through learning the theoretical sides of things. But I find that lots of people say that, oh yeah, people who go to uni, you know, it's all theory and there's no practice. Mm. We're comparing what you were saying before about some people in your field who have been to uni and think they know more than perhaps what uh, they can demonstrate how did you or how do you account for the theoretical sides of things I think theory is a lot more useful when you know when to apply it right that makes sense so and and because that's the, that's the thing all the people that I've I've worked with like they I, I wouldn't doubt that they know the theory you know, but they don't know when to apply it. They don't know when out of the slew of theories that they have of the, the concepts about how to program things, they don't ha like, you, you only get that through experience. Yeah. The you trial know? and error yeah. kind of nature of it. Yeah. You only get that through like reading other people's code and fixing other people's code and fixing your own code where you're like, Oh, I should have used this thing here. I'm going to change it to, to work this way. You know, I still do it nowadays. Like, like this, the project that I'm working on at the moment in my personal time, it's a password manager. Um, it's like, I, I go back and I, I, I read code that I've written prior and I'm like, that is not an efficient way of doing things. I'll, mm. I'll use another concept, you know, use another theory. And it's only with actually using that stuff that you know when to apply it, you know? Mm. Yeah. Can you just go in? Cause you mentioned it briefly when, um, we were first taught, like when you came in today, can you just go into briefly what that 
kind of what that is, what that I, entails? I won't say too much because, um, because you know, proprietary information. Oh, yeah, sure. That. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a password manager. It's, it's, it's um, for storing passwords and, um, you know, uh, facilitating sharing of passwords in like a secure manner. Um, so hopefully mm. that'll take off. Yeah. We'll see. And so do you have, I presume you have deadlines of some sort or because of the more exploratory nature of it, is it a little bit more flexible in terms of when you have to... I kind of want it done in the next couple of months. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And how, how long would you say you spend on per day or week or whatever the relevant time spend interval is? Four or five hours a day on it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Is there, is the stereotype true for the majority of people in, in that field of being very studious and diligent and kind of losing track of time and just delving um, completely into something? Or is it, do you see pretty similar variations of personality and work styles? Uh, yeah, I think most people are more healthy than I am. <laughs> you know, like yeah, okay. more, more healthy in the sense that they, they give their, t their brain time to rest. Yeah. You know, um, I definitely don't do that enough. Yeah, okay. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you're the same, but like, you know, when I got passions, I just like completely delve into it. Like, yeah, you know, into the deep end, and yeah, I don't know. I, just, I, I should give myself more time to rest. It probably would help my cognitive um, output, but I struggle. Mm. I struggle with that, man. Yeah, and you find that the passion is the driving motivator, or is it the sense of like, uh, is is it like outside? pressures or whatever word you want to use i, th I think it comes down to feeling productive huh yeah you know, like like it's like oh right. i could i could do something that's you know cathartic and not pr productive but may as well be productive you know mm. may as well, well when you say that i'd relate to it yeah very much so i, f I find that this i wake up I've been doing a little bit of work on this like personally over the past kind of maybe month or so but before that I had been waking up in the morning with just this very very uncomfortable anxiety and mm. anxiety is inherently uncomfortable but there's different obviously there's different uh, degrees of it but there's this kind of feeling which relates to what you were just saying about like productivity and not wanting to be lazy mm. and with thinking about my mortality like thinking about the fact that i'm going to die one day which i actually i'm i am not opposed to that thought and i in some sense i think more of us should be thinking about that more often there is there's limits to that for sure like if you're um, excessively ruminating over well that's kind of saying the same things twice isn't that ruminating over um you know, in a depressive way, then thinking about your mortality may not be the greatest thing for you. But so for me, I, I find that that recognition of, okay, I'm going to die. Um, kind of makes your time more precious. Yeah, it, it yeah. definitely brings me closer to the moment that I'm in. Mm. Um, and it just makes me want to learn as much as I can about Mm. what I deem to be um, to be interesting and it's hard to know what is and isn't interesting from a novice perspective so I try and give myself uh, the push to go don't be too quick to um, 
not don't be too quick to judge because judgments come naturally but don't be too quick to settle into that judgment yeah um but that uh obviously what comes with that as well like you you could say you know productivity at the expense of sleep like obviously sleep is incredibly important and there are um like health uh threats to your health if you don't sleep um yeah. appropriately and i'm someone who needs a like a reasonable amount of sleep. I can't function off of anything less than probably seven hours of sleep. I'm not sure. What are you like? Uh, I'm, I'm about a five hour person. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's kind of my, my thing. Um, five hours. Yeah. And how long has that been? Ages, ages. Like I'll, I'll do, I'll do a thing like every like couple of months where I'll sleep for an entire weekend. You know what I mean? It's like almost like catch me up for the last couple of months. Wow. And then like, yeah, but, but during the, you know, even during the work week, I'll, you know, go to bed at two, you know, wake up for work at six or seven, you know. And you're, what are you doing in that time from getting home to? The same thing as I always do, writing code. Really? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so there's the passion again. So would you say, this is a bit more of a personal question, but would you say that you, do you enjoy that? You said it comes with its challenges, but if you were do, to do like a, a cost benefit analysis, so I to think, speak. I think I'm riding that dopamine wave you're talking about, mm. you know, like constantly working towards that end goal, you know, like yeah. um, just, just riding that coattail, I think. Um, mm. uh, and building cool stuff. Like there's, you know, there's so much, computers you can do like so much with them because they're just little maths boxes you know and if, if you can express an idea in maths you can m- do it on a computer yeah hence so, why you love yeah. physics as well yeah. yeah so to you know before we kind of end up um and i'm not i'm not necessarily cutting it right here but i'm we interested of for a while sorry we have been gone for a while we have indeed oh wow we have too <laughs> right yeah I was Two just hours and 25 minutes that's insane yeah. <laughs> i mean i'm not surprised yeah. um i thought it was going to be a lengthy conversation but i'm interested what who are some of who are some or what have been some of your inspirations i know that's a kind of a good good question yeah. um hmm yeah, I'd, I'd say I'd say Carl Sagan's a big, mm-hmm. big uh, inspiration. Um, he was a physicist yes. too, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah he was. Um, you know, um, my mate Tom was a big inspiration. Got me into computers. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't really think about that question very often. Who's mm-hmm. your inspirations? Um, well, I, I love the access <clears throat> to YouTube. Um, so I, I like that. I like that some of my best friends, I guess you could say, or the people who I spend most of my time with Mm. are through YouTube with podcasting and things like that. It sounds maybe a bit silly and lonely, but um, with uh, when you're able to listen to somebody and give them the time to express themselves, there are so many people out there with so many interesting things to say that I find, well, definitely Jordan Peterson is a huge one for me just because he's a, a clinical psychologist. And I feel like I'd never experienced uh, like exercise for my brain in like a real rudimentary sense of just keeping up with how many words somebody was saying, because he speaks incredibly quickly with 
a lot of multi-syllable words and he's linking concepts together and doing long detours yeah. that I find just the practice of sustained attention is an exercise in and of itself. And I feel like I'm, I get more into a flow state mm. just by listening to him. So I think, uh, he, he came to Adelaide in November. Did you? Yeah. I went to, I went to his yeah, um, it was a, it show. It was, I, I really liked it. It wasn't anything that I hadn't necessarily heard of before, but I learned so much about where you can go in terms of like people can actually be in front of a stage and mm. not feel very ner- like and and not feel necessarily any more nervous than talking to individuals or at least they're able to suppress that so much that mm. you don't recognize it i was astounded to watch i think it was a few thousand people it's not a concert with some pre-planned um sequence of actions and whatever He's thinking and trying to push himself to the fringes of what he knows mm. and link concepts together. Obviously, he's had years as a um, as a lecturer, but I just found that to be really inspiring. And his his insistence on truth as being redeeming uh, of of things that you would otherwise be guilty for. Because I think I said before that um, I. I uh, guilt can can really plague my mind in some um, in some big in some like kind of large ways. I mentioned waking up and feeling anxious, so I feel like someone like that. Um, I definitely take a lot of inspiration from. But yeah, that was a very <laughs> that was a very long answer for just one person. Um, Lex Friedman's another guy who who I think with a podcast who I speak about, um, which was why I wanted to ask about some of your inspirations. He talks more about um, love and the you know the things of the importance yep. of that. Um, so I I like that as a way of organizing my life. So yeah, I appreciate the the rebound of the question. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, thank you so so much for um, for coming and doing this. Um, no, I, thank you. I've learned heaps and I. Uh, yeah, I really think that people can 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 take something away from it. I think we did relatively well to break down topics that we've spoken a little bit about before, so it might have been easy to kind of take off from where we left off and seem a little bit vague. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> I'm not we sure. We definitely went pretty deep. We yeah. definitely went pretty deep. Yeah, well, I'm glad you said so too because I was, I was feeling like I had to... It felt like grand final day. I was saying <laughs> that. I was like, I've got to be on my A game here. <laughs> now. Nah, so thank you very much. And um, yeah, maybe sometime we can do it again if you're interested. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome, dude. Sweet. Cheers.